0: Tonight we are in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, We've been traversing through uh, Peter's letters and seeing what we can see as we navigate uh, the Apostle Peter's writings here, uh, which serve, I think, as some of his... More heartfelt and passionate sort of uh, beliefs as he is seeking to edify these churches. As we've seen, they are churches that are in the surrounding areas of Asia Minor. You find their locations in 1 Peter 1, verse 1, uh, in uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Of course, churches that were predominantly made up of Gentile believers, as we have noted before, Which is significant because of all of the effort that Peter spends, especially in the first chapter, uh, reassuring them of their position in Christ. That nothing can ever shake their position that they have by faith in Jesus. As he has everywhere noting that they are, as he says in verse 2 of chapter 1, they are the elect of God. They are part of the prearranging order of all things that God has already uh, set in stone that they would be a part of this very specific moment. He has made this so. Along with this newfound faith and along with this sort of position as they are God's elect and they are this, they are part of the church came this newfound season of suffering too. Uh, this, as we have noted, uh, obviously has been a very strong theme throughout these, le- throughout this, this letter, the theme of suffering and precisely that we ought not to be stunned by it. And those really significant verses, I'll just read them. Uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Peter writes, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Here we have, I think, the most profound truth that he is seeking to instill in these churches, that don't be surprised, don't be stunned, don't be shocked or caught off guard by what's happening to you. This is part of the prearranging of God. Yes, the same God who elected you to this faith has now, yes, prearranged, foreordained these sufferings for your benefit. This is part of his work in you and on you. And of course, no doubt, there was still much anxiety that was filtering through this church, as we can rightly understand. Whenever uh, trying seasons come about, it raises our alarms, it raises our anxiety levels. And such is why Peter is closing this first letter, of course, first, of 1 first Peter, with a chapter that I think is primarily concerned with, I would say it this way, how to sort of manage all that he's been discussing so far. All of the things that he's been seeking to have the church come to grips with and also have them uh, sort of instilled. All of these things that he desires that they would be, be benefited by, and that they would find profitable for the flock of God. He desires that they would manage it, so to speak. That's not precisely the right word. I would say a better word is he wants them to shepherd The truth that he is desiring to have them come to know more and more and more. Here's how you shepherd the truth that I've just given you. For your benefit, for the benefit of the flock of God, for the benefit of God's glory. You see, Peter, throughout this letter, has given example after example of what it means to be born again unto a lively hope. Chapter 1, verse 3, we've looked at that verse and we've referenced it over and over again. And precisely because I think this is sort of the fulcrum on which this letter turns. He's seeking that all in the church, all these newfound believers would find hope and peace and presence and identity in the fact that they've been born again by Jesus and his blood and his grace. But all of what he said... All of what Peter has here written to this church would be sort of for naught, if it wasn't managed, if it wasn't stewarded, if it wasn't shepherded for the flock of God, for their benefit and for the glory of God himself. And such is why he begins verse uh, chapter 5 verse 1, addressing the elders... The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. He's going to describe, I think, some traits that ought to be uh, distinguishing marks of elders, of pastors, of those who are leading the church in any position. But I would also say, hasten to say this too that. These aren't relegated to just elders. (laughs) We are all commissioned, I believe, as churchgoers, as the church of God, to be shepherding the truth in and amongst our own circles, in our own lives, in those whose lives we touch. These ought to be distinguishing marks of our lives as well. As we, who have been saved and born again uh, by this lively hope, by the work of the chief shepherd, which he's going to mention soon. We do all that we do for his benefit, the glory of the chief shepherd. And so how do we do that? How do we shepherd the truth of God for the flock of God, as he is going to here articulate? Well, I think he does that in three ways in these first six verses. Firstly, I want you to notice in verses 1 and 2 a lesson about our attentive care. A lesson about our attentive care. Notice verse 1 again. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, nor a filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, I find it interesting that, as Peter opens this chapter, he is uh, he, he doesn 't address this church as one who is an apostle. he actually addresses them as a fellow elder. he keeps himself on the same sort of status as these who are leading these churches. Peter could have. Pulled the apostle card, so to speak, and really made sure that they were listening to what he said. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. You have to listen to what I say. I'm authoritative. He addresses them as a fellow elder. But actually, he even addresses them even more personally. Because you notice he says, I was a witnesser of all of these sufferings which Jesus suffered. But I was, I'm also now a partaker. I'm a sharer in them too. He doesn't brandish his title. He actually addresses them here on their sort of same level, if you want to use that sort of terminology, which I find so appealing. That Peter is here addressing them not from one who is above, sort of seeking to that they get up to his level, so to speak, as a, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is writing as one who is in the trenches with these churches in the, in, the, in the heat of their warfare for the sake of Jesus Christ, in sort of the, the ringing of their battle for the sake of the name of Jesus, here Peter is addressing them just like that, as a captain who is shoulder to shoulder with his comrades in battle. This is how he's addressing them, as we will see in a moment, as a fellow servant of Jesus' name. One who testifies, witnesses, one who shares, partakes in the sufferings of Jesus. And he does this for a very compelling reason, to remind them of what one of their primary duties is, feed the flock of God. I love that imagery which that conveys that the words of peter is here calling to mind of course a very familiar image that appears throughout the scriptures and that of the church as the as a, as a flock of of as a flock of sheep that are tended by the good shepherd and literally that's what that word feed there means tend Attend to nourish in, in in all of the ways that a shepherd attends to the very needs of his flock, whatever those might be. So too are these elders here called to attend to their church's needs. Whether it be protection from, from falsehood. Whether it be uh, very intimate and very personal care for struggling seasons that they are enduring. Whether it be uh, nourishing them with the words of God itself. Here he is calling to them. Give them what they need. Attend to their cares. It could be nourishment, guidance, protection. Whatever it be, the shepherd's attention was to be entirely given over to those under his care. And such is what he is calling not just the elders, but the church to as well. Attend to those who are around you, feed the flock of God which is among you, he says. Their needs, their cares, give them your all, he is saying. Give them yourself. This, I think, has a very strong parallel to something that Peter was privy to. I'm going to take you to a couple passages. As we have noted throughout, I think Peter is, Peter's letters are sort of the outworking of his experiences as a, an apostle and disciple of Jesus that we find in the Gospels. Uh, go to John chapter 10, where we find a very significant passage which talks about the true shepherd, the good shepherd. You're likely familiar with these verses. But I find it interesting how Jesus is describing what a true shepherd does. And how Peter contrasts that with his own sort of reprimand to feed the flock. Notice John chapter 10 verse 11. Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling... And not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is a hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. You see, what, what Jesus, you're contrasting, what he would come to do is completely different than what other, quote, hirelings, those who have been uh, sort of hired on to watch the flock, what they were described of doing. They flee at the first sign of trouble. They don't lay their lives down for the sake of the flock. They leave at the first sign that something is wrong, something is amiss. They don't have the same type of devotion. They don't have the same type of attention. They don't commit themselves to the same type of care as those who are true shepherds. And such as you can hear Peter's encouragement to these who are leading this church. Lead by attending to your sheep's needs. Just as your shepherd, the true shepherd, the good shepherd, as he is going to call him later on in chapter 5, as the chief shepherd would do. Who would lay his life down. Who would stand at the front of the flock in case of, 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 uh, 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 of an enemy assailing them. This is what the flock was, or this is what the shepherds were called to do. Notice he says in verse 2. Feed the flock of, back in First Peter 5. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint... But willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. He doesn't, he desires that they see that they are called to represent the chief shepherd and he is not like a hireling. He doesn't do it for self-serving reasons. He's not serving uh, this flock just for what he can get and what he can gain and what he can amass for himself. This is the first duty of the church. Represent the shepherd through attentive care for the needs of the church. As those who hold the position of under-shepherd, so to speak, of the chief shepherd. And this is, this is what he is encouraging him in. God's church demands and deserves your attention, your care. And I would say, even if, even if ministry is not your quote-unquote job... <laughs> We all have been given the commission, the same one, which is to spend our lives, as Jesus says in Acts 1.8, as those who are witnesses and sharers of Jesus' sufferings. We point to him, as Jesus says to Peter himself, yes, but all of the apostles there right before he ascended, you shall be witnesses of me. And this is here what he is encouraging the churches with. Feed the flock by witnessing to me. Give them what they need. A lesson about our attentive care. But notice secondly in verses 3 and 4. A lesson about our typical sacrifice. A lesson about our typical sacrifice. Notice what he says. Feed the flock of God, verse 2, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. Not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but of... A ready mind. Neither is as being lords over God's heritage, but being in or examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. There's a wonderful image that is immediately brought to mind here, and it appears in verse three. Notice he says, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Those who are uniquely charged, again, he's addressing the elders, but it's a letter that was obviously read in the midst of a church body, a church gathering. Those, though, who are uniquely charged with leading and shepherding God's truth for God's flock, for God's glory, we are not in a position, as he says, of lordship. Not as lords, not as domineering sort of tyrants. Again, he's contrasting the chief shepherd against false shepherds who may have arisen or were stirring up strife among the churches. These elders, he was charging them with, you're not to dominate the flock that God has given to you under your care. Instead, they are to feed them and nourish them. And the way that they do this, the primary way that the church is nourished and built up and fed is how by, as he says, by being an example to the flock. A wonderful word, that example. It means here uh, embodiment or imitation So you can see here, one of the chief duties of those who are in the church is to literally embody as best they can by faith, through grace, the shepherd's sacrificial love. This is the sacrifice with which we have been drawn to Jesus himself. We are likewise to be examples of in our lives. This is what we are charged with. As those who represent the chief shepherd, we are called with imitating the shepherd's sacrifice... Embodying the same sense of uh, sort of deferential compassion for those who are among us. The embodying and imitating the same sort of, uh, of, of mercy and love for those who are in need. Jesus, we see, his sacrificial love for us, even unto death, as, as Paul would say, informs and inspires our love for others. And this is here what Peter is encouraging the church in. He put himself in harm's way for the good of the flock, and so ought we. Even at the risk of our own lives, our own livelihoods, we step into harm's way for the good of the flock and the glory of God. We aren't lords. We don't sit in our ivory towers, as Peter has said here. I'm an elder among you. I am a partaker and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And I'm suffering right alongside you. As one who is in the trenches with you. I'm not a lord as though I'm a commander. A general who is far off away from the heat of the conflict. I am in the midst of it with you. It is God's desire that we function as shepherds. Laying our lives down. For the good of the flock. Imitating what Jesus did in that way. Laying down our sense of ownership. Yes, over, uh, over the people. But laying down our sense of ownership. Even over our own. Of our own lives. Here this is how we, we embody. And we serve the church. Sacrificially. We bring, I would say, lost sheep into the flock of God. By living in this way. By being examples of the compassion and the sacrifice which drew us to Jesus in the first place. Which rescued us from the haunts of sin in darkness. It's that sacrificial love. Which is everywhere talked about throughout the Old Testament. This is what we are called to embody as the church of God. To be examples of that patient love of God. I don't think there's one. I don't even know if there's a book about this. <laughs> I don't, if there is. I would love to read it. Just Have you ever thought about how patient God is? How uh, that, that word that appears in the scriptures elsewhere. The long suffering of God. Because he suffers long with our stubbornness a lot of times. <laughs> that patient faithful love. Which our God gives so freely and willingly. He is here. Peter is here calling the church. Embody that sort of patient love for your flock. Be examples of that. Ooh, wouldn't that change? Change the way we relate to those in the flock if we were more patient with them. It's hard to do a lot of times. We like our ways, we like, and we're, we're going to get to that in a minute. But here he's calling them, patiently love those that God has entrusted to you. They aren't your, uh, your underlings, as he says here, they are God's heritage. They are his, that you have been charged with feeding and nourishing and tending. Example, be an example of his compassion and his sacrificial love. I couldn't help but think, when I was studying this, of that verse from Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul calls the church to be living sacrifices. This is, I think, what Peter is hearkening to as well. Examples of the father, of the chief shepherd. We are likewise to be... Examples of sacrifice for their sake, for their benefit, for the benefit of the flock of God. A lesson about our attentive care. A lesson about our typical sacrifice. But lastly, number three in verses five and six. I think we see a lesson about our humble service. A lesson about our humble service. Notice verse five. Peter says, likewise ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder." Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Here, Peter returns to a theme which we have noted previously uh, that has uh, appeared throughout the previous chapters of this letter. And that theme is that of submission. He calls, as here, likewise ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. And the same word appears in the next phrase. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. This sort of first half of verse 5 basically sums up chapters 2 and 3. If you want to go back, we, we, we dealt with that topic at length in those chapters about serving one another through submission, through deference, here he's just making a blanket statement. All of you just serve one another. Be subject to those who are around you. And indeed, I don't, I don't think it's too reductive to say that this has been his sort of primary point. This self-deferential service to others and for others and that this is what we are called to as the church of God. This is what uh, keeps us united as the church of God. This is what allows us to be examples to those around us that we are the church of God. This is the primary uh, signpost. The, 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 the way that we most definitely and distinguishingly uh, mark ourselves out as God's elect is the self sacrificial and self-deferential compassion for those who are around us. This is how they know that we are gods. That I think this is what he has been saying here. And this is why I think he he leaves uh, for last in talking about this topic of subjection and submission and humility. His most illustrative picture. This expression here in verse 5. Be clothed with humility. Hmm. What a wonderful image that is. (laughs) All of you, put on humility like you're putting on a jacket or putting on a sweater. Put it on. This is what you are called to, a very evocative picture, I think, by Peter here. And I think even the image is made even more sort of, I think, powerful as we understand the type of clothing he was sort of referencing by this phrase. Clothed with humility literally means a servant's apron. That's the type of clothing you're putting on. A livery is what they often call it. A uniform of service worn by a servant or a housemaid. This is what he's referencing. From that I want to make a couple observations really quick before we close. If he's telling them to put it on, what does that make you think? It makes us think that humility doesn't come naturally. (laughs) He's reminding the church, clothe yourselves. Don't forget before you go out the door, just like when it's really cold, you have to make sure you put on your jacket. Even though your little kids don't want to wear a jacket Lydia, every time we go outside, she insists that she's not going to be cold. I don't understand the child's logic that jackets are, you know, of the devil or something and they don't want to wear them. (laughs) But she insists that she's not going to be cold. And then we get outside and she says to me, I'm freezing. Yeah, because you didn't put your jacket on. (laughs) Here I get the same sort of picture in my mind. Peter is addressing these churches and he's charging them, "Don't forget. <laughs> Don't forget to put on your garment of humility." It doesn't come naturally to us. We're naturally bent on ourselves. I know I know this intimately. Perhaps you do too. The Latins had a really uh, 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 sort of fascinating concept for this. During their times of the Reformation, uh, there was a a phrase that was often coined and and, and brought about by many of the reformers. It was a Latin phrase which goes, in curvatus in se, which literally means man is turned in on himself. You could translate it, he's navel gazing, which is a very vulgar picture. (laughs) But that's what their picture was of sin. Man only concerned with what he can see at this angle. (laughs) That's a powerful image of the pride which naturally arises out of our hearts, out of our bellies. It's natural, it's innate for us to be completely self-interested. Concerning ourselves with ourselves, putting all of our needs and priorities and preferences way far above those of of others. That's natural for us. (laughs) And such is why the gospel of Jesus Christ cuts into that pride with such astonishing humility that cuts down all conceit, that cuts down all (laughs) self-interest. How? Because Jesus is the embodiment of humble service. He's the embodiment of clothing himself with humility. I, cannot, I have to read these verses because I couldn't help but get this connection between these two passages, as Paul, or excuse me, as Peter is here, encouraging the church to clothe yourselves with humility. Listen to uh, Philippians chapter two, verse five. Philippians 2.5 where Paul says this. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself even excuse me, and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. Wherefore God... Also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. That wonderful phrase. He took upon him the form of a servant. You get the same picture. He's putting on the servant's robe. He's putting on flesh for us. This is Jesus' humble service. Again, like we said earlier, which informs and inspires our humble service for others. So, humility doesn't come naturally. It comes as a byproduct of the gospel. (laughs) Clothe yourselves with the humility with which we have seen, exampled in Jesus, but also... We have here in this passage, Philippians 2, but what Peter is specifically talking about back in 1 Peter 5 is that humility is best expressed in service for others. He's been talking about service what, there's a word earlier in chapter 4. What, it's actually, um, let me see if I can find it. It's, it's the word in verse 10 of chapter 4. Minister, it, as we saw last week, it literally means as one, to, as one who waits upon someone else. Like a waiter at a restaurant. That type of service. Here he's calling them to be servants of those who are around them. And I have no doubt in my mind. That as Peter was writing these words or dictating them, as he's charging these churches to clothe themselves with humility, that his thoughts were completely occupied with that moment on the eve of his Lord's death when his Lord and his master took off his robe and washed all of the disciples' feet. Go to that passage. It's in John chapter 13. Because there's some really powerful words that are similar to what he's using here in 1 Peter 5. John 13. Notice verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands, that he was come from God and went to God. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. (laughs) Peter, I think, remembered those words. (laughs) He knew what Jesus was talking about later on. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answers him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. That image, though, of Jesus laying aside his garments and taking up a towel and girding himself as a servant. He's embodying that moment of being clothed with humility. Serving those that were among him. A servant who puts on his uniform for service. I don't think Peter ever forgot that moment. For all of his days, he remembered that scene. Where his master, his teacher, his Lord, who would in a few short hours be crucified for his sins. Washed his feet in one of the most remarkable and astonishing acts of service we've ever seen. And he remembered, I think, I think, then it came together. In Mark 10, 45, we have that incredible declaration of Jesus, of what his mission was. That he hadn't come to be served, he came to serve. <laughs> and then it all sort of clicked afterwards. <laughs> he knew what he was talking about. That, that service that Jesus was embodying, that was his entire mission. And he did it unto the end. Because Jesus' ultimate service results in our ultimate good, salvation. The ultimate service of our Heavenly Father results in all of why we are here as the flock of God itself. So we who affirm that Jesus is the Lord and the Christ, we who believe in this new birth unto this lively hope through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we carry out our roles. As Peter has referenced them, as pilgrims and strangers, nowhere better than how we live and humbly serving those around us. Attending to their cares and needs by typifying the sacrifice with Jesus sacrificed himself and by humbling serving, humbly serving those who are among us. This is how we shepherd the truth of the chief shepherd. This is how we serve the flock of God. I pray to have this heart This heart which isn't turned in on itself but is looking out with attentiveness and looking up with hope. Being so sure of that which Jesus Christ has finished. This is how we shepherd the truth of God. For the flock of God and for the glory of God. Let us pray.